All right, well, grab your Bibles, and let's jump into God's Word today. It's a very exciting day also on this front because we are finishing the book of Nehemiah this morning. Uh, Chapter 13 is today. We've been working our way through the book of Nehemiah all fall, and we have finally got to the end. Um, And we're going to see something that I think it's kind of interesting here how Nehemiah ends this book. Um, I think it says a lot to what his purpose is and what he's going for here as he's writing, what he includes in this final chapter. Um, And so I think that's going to be helpful for us today. So Nehemiah chapter 13, we're going to be looking at taking new ground through growing. So, you know, despite the um, continuing struggle of this year, finally, at least for me, finally this week, I saw a glimmer of light at the end of the proverbial tunnel. Men's college hoops are back. I don't know if anybody else got on that this week. I got to see Kentucky play again this week. It was just like sweet nectar to my soul, right? Like this is, this is good stuff. And so we finally, we've been paddling through just every that little glimmer of light. But anyways, I was thinking about basketball this week a little bit, and I, there was always a saying that was used when I was playing ball a lot, playing sports in different ways, that, um, that the best offense is a great, yeah, you guys have heard it, right? Like, and so, and, and you know, that's kind of one of the things like, Offense is always the flashy part that everybody likes to watch. It's the fun part. But defense is what wins games. Um, but what's interesting to me is as popular as that saying has come, become, especially like in our modern-day sports world, before that was a saying, there was actually a different saying that was the inverse of that, which has been a long-time war strategy for millennia, and that's this. The best defense is a good offense. And the idea there is, in war, if you're going to win, you want to attack first and catch the enemy on their heels before they can come at you. And so if you can get to them first before they're coming at you, then you have a better chance of winning. When it comes to our fight against temptation, when it comes to the fight against sin in our lives, we need offense and we need defense, but I think the second saying is a little bit more helpful. And we're going to see here as Nehemiah is pressing into the people who have kind of backslidden a little bit in chapter 13, that we need to guard our hearts against the idols and against the sin that come at us. But sometimes the best way we can guard our hearts is not to wait for it to come, but to actively be pressing back, actively be on the offense against temptation and sin in our lives instead of just playing defense all the time. And so that's what I want you to see here in this passage is Nehemiah is going to show us his personal example and also lead the people into this example as well. To grow for God's glory, I must guard against the idols of my heart. To grow for God's glory, I must grow, I must guard against the idols of my heart. So part of this is a guarding thing, but then again, there's an active part of this guarding. I'm going to kind of in those categories of guarding our heart, I also want to point out here seven different, I'm going to call them idol-smashing steps, okay, that I think Nehemiah is taking here with himself, with the people, that we can do as active offense against sin and temptation in our lives. So it's going to be a little bit different format this week for the sermon notes. So you'll see kind of the main points and stuff there on the left, and then at the very end, you have this list of seven idol-smashing steps. These are the applications of what we can do to grow in sanctification, and to grow in the Lord when it comes to sin and temptation in our lives. So, let's start with uh, verse 1, chapter 13. It says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, 
And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. All right, so number one, first way we need to guard our heart today is this. Guard against complacency. Guard against complacency. Now, let me do a little explaining here because there's some language in the first part of 13 that can maybe be a little confusing for you. So it starts off and it says, on that day. Now, the reason that that phrase could maybe throw us off a little bit here is because it's the same phrase that kind of ended the last scene when they said, on that day, meaning on the day of the great celebration for the wall. You remember that? But this, on that day, is a different day. (laughs) It's not on that day of celebration. It's on that day of whatever day it was that they were talking about. Because what we're going to see is there's a gap here between verses, or chapter 12 and chapter 13 of probably 12 or more years um, between what Nehemiah is doing here. Because what happens is, Nehemiah, if you remember, he first came to Jerusalem to set up the walls and to get things going, but he told the emperor, right, that I'm not going to stay there forever, I'm going to come back to you. And so what we know from historical records is that Nehemiah was governor of Judea in that area for about 12 years, and then he left and he went back to the emperor, and he was there for we don't know how long, and then eventually he came back to check on Jerusalem again to say, hey, how are things going, What's, what are things looking like, Okay. When we get down to verse 4 and 6, you're going to see that here in just a second, where it talks about him coming back to Jerusalem from the emperor. So there's a, there's a gap here in between 12 and 13, as best we can tell, and um, where Nehemiah is gone for a little while. And then when he comes back, what he finds out is the people, they've returned to their old ways. They've gotten complacent in following God, and they've returned to their sins, they've returned to their idols, they're right back where they were before he ever came and set up the wall and did all the reforms the first time. He's going to have to deal with these idols of their heart again. Because that's the way idols work. They dig in roots, and as soon as we think we've got them gone, and we let up, and we get complacent, they just start to grow right back. Okay? So it says, on that day, they read from the book of Moses. So they're going back to the scriptures again. They're reading God's word. Specifically, we're going to find out here as we go further, they're going to be reading what we call, what we call Deuteronomy 23, 3-5, where it specifically addresses this issue that says, no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. And when it says assembly of God, it's talking about the worship of God, the temple of God. When, people, when God's people assemble to worship him, that the Ammonites, the Moabites, they weren't welcome there. Because they did not meet Israel, but tried to curse them with Balaam. So I don't know if you know this story or not, but when Israel's coming into the promised land, they're coming by the land that was owned by the Ammonites, Moabites, and they won't let them pass through. They make them go around, and they try to, because they're scared they're going to take them over. And they call this, this old prophet Balaam to come and curse the people. And he's got this whole thing with his donkey. If you've never read that story, it's really funny. You should go read that story about Balaam and the donkey, all right? But... They try to curse him, and Balaam can't curse him because God uses Balaam actually to bless the people of Israel, and it gets them all sideways. But anyways, they didn't receive God's people as they should have, and so God said, they're not welcome here. They don't believe in me. They don't want to follow me. Fine. Then they're out. And so it says here that the Israelites, as soon as they heard the law that they were reading, they separated from those of foreign descent. Now again, let me just clarify here. This is not racially motivated. 
They're not separating from the Ammonites and the Moabites because they're a different race. It's because they're a different religion. They believe in different gods. They are refusing to worship Yahweh. And if you don't want to worship Yahweh, then you don't need to be with us when we're worshiping Yahweh. <laughs> like that just kind of makes sense, right? And so they're separating here. And remember, this isn't the first time they've done this. Back in chapter 10, this all came out. And they said, okay, we're going to separate from the, the, the people around us. We're going to be unto God. So they separated themselves before, but somehow it's gotten all intermixed again because they've gotten complacent. Now, again, this isn't for all Moabites and Ammonites because interestingly enough, if you've ever read the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, you remember the book of Ruth? Ruth was a Moabite. But she was welcomed in. But the difference is she converted to Judaism. She professed faith in Yahweh, and so therefore she was welcomed in. So this isn't like God says, these people can't have me and these people can't have me. It says, if you'll put your faith in me, then come on. But these people weren't doing that. And so they separated themselves. But here's the point I want to really point out here that I think is important. It says, as soon as they heard the law. As soon as they heard. Which leads us to the first idol-smashing step that we see here from the people and from Nehemiah, that's number one, take immediate action. Take immediate action. As soon as God's word reveals to you a sin in your life, don't wait till later, don't kind of just phase it out, like immediately get on it and call that out and get it taken care of in your life. I've said this multiple times before. I'll keep saying it to you over and over again because it's so important. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Our kids know because they hear it at home too. Delayed obedience is disobedience. When God says something, he wants us to do it now. Right? There's, there's no waiting. Every minute of delay makes it worse for us. I was thinking about this, and I remembered my first ever teaching job. I was fresh out of college. My first ever teaching job was a long-term sub position teaching seventh grade geography. It was brutal. The geography part was not so bad, but the seventh grade part, right, that's just not my cup of tea. Courtney used to teach middle school as well. We used to joke around that, like, all seventh graders should be sent away to a third world country for a year, and then when they're done, they can come back. But like for a year, they need to experience that and figure out what life's all about, and we need a year of sanity while they're gone, okay? Um, and so, but anyways, I was teaching the seventh grade class, and I had this one class that was right before lunch, and they were so talkative. They would talk nonstop. They would talk when class was starting. They would talk in between transitions. They would talk when I was talking, just talk, 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 talk all the time. They would not shut up. So finally, I made this rule with them. I said, okay, guys, here's the deal. For every minute that you're talking when I'm supposed to be talking, then you're going to lose one minute of your lunch. Like, you're going to have to stay back with me. You're not going to lunch. We're going to take a minute of lunch away. And it didn't really, it didn't really help at all at first. I don't think they really believed me that I was going to do it. But after the two or three times of them losing five or seven minutes of their 20-minute lunch, they started kind of getting the clue. And then I would step up to the podium, and it would go silent because they learned the consequences of what it was. And then they would take immediate action. This is what it needs to be for us in sin. 
We need to see clearly the consequences of what sin has done and what it will do. And then we need to take immediate action to deal with that. Disobedience blocks spiritual growth. This is really the key, guys. When I'm delaying in disobedience, it's blocking what God wants to do in my life. It's blocking how he wants to grow me and stretch me. And we get spiritually stuck when we're living in disobedience to God. And that's not what he wants for you. So, step number one is take immediate action. Let's keep going, though, in the text here. Look at verse 4. It says, now, before this, and this is the key here, so he's saying what just happened was after what we're about to read about right here in chapter 13. So now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and then discovered that the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of our God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture Tobiah out of the chamber, and then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did not work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? I gathered them together and set them in their stations. And then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Pedaiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachar, the son of Madaniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Second way we need to guard our hearts is to guard against consumerism. Guard against consumerism. So it starts off here with this guy, Eliashib. And we find out that he is a priest um, in the temple of God, but he's also related to Tobiah. Right? Now, if you remember from earlier in Nehemiah, Tobiah is like the arch enemy of Nehemiah. Right? Like this has been the guy that's been a thorn in his side from the very beginning. And now this guy has a connection to Eliashib. And so Eliashib, basically to get in good with Tobiah, gives him a large chamber in the temple of God. He takes a room in the temple that's supposed to be for the offerings of God, and he clears it out so Tobiah can have his own little pad in the temple. All right? And so now he has a place that is in the center of Jewish spiritual and political and, and social life where he can have influence over the people of God. This was disgraceful. It was defiling to the temple, and it was disqualifying for Eliashib. This was a major violation. And Eliashib and Tobiah here, they are both trying to use God and use his house for their own personal benefit. It's about them. 
It's not about God anymore. They've made it about them. So Nehemiah comes back and he finds this and he says, I was angry and I threw out all the furniture. He takes all the top five furniture and he throws it out of the temple. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I remember that happening some other time. His name was Jesus. Right? Remember when he comes walking into the temple and they're all selling stuff and he starts throwing over tables and kicking people out? Because they were making it about them and not about the Lord. So Tobiah comes and he th- or, I'm sorry, Nehemiah comes and he throws all the stuff out. And to us, this kind of seems like extreme. Like, I think sometimes people are uncomfortable with that picture of Jesus kicking over tables and driving people out with whips. Right? Like, like that's kind of extreme. Like, should we really be that violent? Should we really be that crazy? When it comes to sin? Yeah. So Nehemiah, he throws it all out and says he cleansed and he restored the chamber. Here's the key for worship. He was making it back about the Lord. See, Nehemiah, he took God's glory and he took God's worship seriously. And if you're going to infringe on that and you're going to step on that, he's got no space for you. Which leads us to step number two, idol smashing step number two, cut out sin. When you find sin in your life, you need to cut it out of your life as soon and as quick and as hard as you possibly can. If that takes extreme measures, so be it. If that takes throwing some stuff out of your life and getting things taken care of, you do what you got to do to get the sin out. We don't play with that any longer. So he gets the furniture out. He gets the room restored and cleansed. And then he says, he also found out that the portions of the Le- for the Levites had not been given to them. All right, so they were supposed to be taking an offering and, and helping support the Levites as they did the work of the temple, but that wasn't happening, so they had to leave the work of the temple, and it says they fled to their fields. They went back to making their own money and making their own food for their, for their family so they could survive. And the reason this all is happening, because again, the people have gotten consumeristic, they've gotten inward-focused, and they've stopped giving. They've stopped tithing to God's house. They've started having a heart of get rather than a heart of give. And they're no longer supporting the work of the Lord because of their greed and their selfishness. So Nehemiah, in classic Nehemiah style, confronts them again. And he tells them, this isn't right. We should be doing this. And so he starts to gather the tithes back in to the storehouses at the temple. And he brings the Levites back and he puts them back to work for the Lord and for his temple. But then he doesn't stop there. Notice what he does next. Gets the tithes going, gets the Levites back, and it says he appointed treasurers to oversee the tithes and the distribution. He had to appoint guys to oversee this because obviously the last guys weren't getting it done. They had fallen down the job. They weren't doing their part. So he needed somebody who was going to be reliable, as he says here, to make sure that it gets done and to hold our feet to the fire. This is step number three in smashing idols. Number three, set up accountability. Nehemiah here, he sets up accountability for the people to say, listen, you need to be giving to this so that the God's work and God's house can continue to flourish. We all need help keeping our heart in check sometimes. Have you noticed this? 
We are all capable of sin. None of us are exempt. It's, it's, it's easy for all of us to slip back into making it about me and not doing what God's called me to do and, and falling down. And, and sometimes we need somebody to hold our feet to the fire and say, listen, this is what God's word says and you need to stand to this. This is why accountability is so important. That's why we talk about it so much in our small groups. It's like we need people around us who can help us stay accountable to God's word. When Courtney and I were first married, um, it came out that I had a major problem with purity of my eyes and with lust. And um, it had been building in my life for many years, and it was a serious, serious idol in my heart. And it had to be dealt with. Like, there just wasn't, there just no more. Like, it was out, it, it had to be dealt with. And these two steps, they didn't solve the whole problem, but they were the two biggest first steps to helping me crush this idol in my life. One, I had to cut the sin out, extreme measures. I had to change the way that I interacted with certain things. Certain access to technology had to be changed and, and, and blockers had to be put in place to help with that. We had to change what movies we watched. We had to change what TV shows we watched. We couldn't just put on whatever anymore. We had to filter all of that because it just wasn't helpful to me. There was too much temptation for sin. So we had to change our lives. We had to change how we functioned to cut that out. And then I had to have accountability. I found other guys who had similar struggles, and we met every single week. And they would ask me hard questions, and they would press in on me with God's word, and they would pray with me, and they would pray for me, and I would pray with them and pray for them, and we would keep each other accountable to this is what God has called us to do. Idols and sin in our hearts are powerful. Do not fool yourself into thinking that it's not a big deal. Sometimes it takes big moves and extreme measures to cut this stuff out of your life. We have to be willing to do that if we're going to follow the Lord. So steps number two and three, cut out sin, set up accountability. Let's look at the third area of our heart that we need to guard. Look at verse 15. It says, in those days I saw in Judah people treading the wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. The Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that, had no that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. 
That's not the good kind of hands, by the way, just in case you were wondering, okay? From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 23 says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughter to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the, and one of the sons of Jehoda, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was, in, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Hornite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. All right, this last portion here, point number three, guard our hearts against compromise. Guard against compromise. So we see two different examples of compromise here. One is about the Sabbath and one is about interfaith marriage. So we'll hit them kind of individually here for a second. So first we have this, he says, I saw them treading wine press, I saw them bringing grain, I saw them buying goods, all on the Sabbath. The people, once again, have compromised the worship of God and the honor of God to line their pockets, to make more money, to get more work done on the day that they're supposed to be resting in the Lord. And so Nehemiah says, I warned them. And I confronted them. And when he confronts them, notice what he says. He brings up God's word again. So do you remember what the word says? You remember what God told us to do and how our, our fathers rebelled and, and then they were sent into exile? And like he's bringing them back to what God has said again. Which brings us to the next step when it comes to smashing idols. Step number four, have truth tellers. Have truth tellers in your life. Have people that you invite them to speak truth into your life and then listen to them. But choose wisely who your truth tellers are. <laughs> Just a little bit of experience here for you, okay? Choose somebody that's too harsh and you're going to get legalistic, Pharisee, beating you on the head with their preferences and their personality. Pick somebody that's too soft, and they're never going to really tell you the truth. And they're just going to be like, oh, you'll get it. It'll be better next time, and it's okay. And they're just going to slide everything under the rug. You need to find somebody who's balanced in grace and truth, but most of all has a firm grip on the Word of God. And it's going to speak to you what God says, not just what they think. Get some truth tellers in your life. Listen, some of y'all you have some quote-unquote truth-tellers in your life, but they're the wrong ones. You've got some people that you're listening to, and you're taking what they say as truth, but they're not giving you God's truth. They're giving you the world's truth. Could be a friend. 
could be a family member, could be a coworker, could be a media source, could be a politician, could be a celebrity. Many of us are listening to a lot of voices right now. And we need to discern which ones are the truth tellers according to God's word and which ones are not. Choose wisely. So then Nehemiah, he confronts them about the Sabbath thing. He says, listen, this is wrong. We need to stop this. God's word says no. He tells them the truth. But then he goes one step further. He says, I commanded that the doors be shut. Right? So it's on the Sabbath. We're going to shut the gates of the city. Nobody's getting in or out. We're not doing this anymore. So we could keep the outside merchants from coming in and selling goods and tempting the Jews to violate the Sabbath. So he shuts the doors, but the merchants don't give up. They don't just go back home. They decide they're going to create a little camp outside the wall and just wait for the next opportunity to jump in once the gates are open. But Nehemiah, he goes outside the gates and meets with these guys. He says, listen, if I see you here again, I'm going to lay hands on you. Nehemiah, don't play, right? Like, like if you come, if you do this again, it's going to go down. And he runs them off, and they stop coming outside. Maybe that's, a new, maybe that's like a new harvest ministry, like the laying hands ministry. Do we need to like do that one? But what I love here about what Nehemiah is doing is he's showing us here that, listen, he's serious about sin, and he's serious about honoring God. Whatever it takes. So this leads us not so much to laying on the hands part, but the closing the gates part is step number five. And I'm going to call that build fences. I could have called it build walls or build gates, but the language I usually use when I'm counseling people is fences. Build fences in your life. Set boundaries. Set safeguards up between you and sin, between you and temptation to keep it at bay. Don't let it get all up nice and cozy with you. Don't let it come in and and tempt you. Like, Keep that at a distance as much as you can. Set up some fences and some boundaries that keep you there. And again, I'll talk to guys sometimes, and they'll be like, uh, I know, but I've been a Christian for a long time, and you know, I'm really, I'm strong enough to handle this. It's, it's not going to get me. I'm not going to fall to this temptation. I've got this. No, you don't. Maybe you do today. Maybe you do tomorrow or next week. But one of these times, it's going to catch you when you're weak, and you're not going to have it. And that's all it takes. It's one moment of weakness when you're that cozy with the possibility of sin. You're not strong enough. You are flesh. I am flesh. We need to recognize that and not put our hope and our strength in ourselves, but in the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and be wise and build some fences. So that's step number five. So he deals with the Sabbath issue, and then he has another issue here that's also an issue of compromise. And he says, I found some Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. So again, this is pointing back to chapter 10. They were doing this before. This is interfaith marriage. They're marrying other people of other beliefs, other, other religions. But here he explains why this is an even bigger issue than just the marriage. Notice what he says here. The children started speaking the language of Ashdod, not Judah. 
Why is that significant? Because the language of Judah, the Hebrew language, was one of the main things that created them as a people group. It's what knit them together as the people of God, as a culture, as a group. And if they didn't speak the same language, then they wouldn't continue to walk together in unity as the people of God. So one, it was going to lose their identity as the people of God if they lost the language. And number two, if they lost the language, they would lose access to God's word. We have such a privilege today that God's word is translated into so many different languages. They didn't have that back then. They had one. It was in Hebrew. That was it. You didn't speak Hebrew. You didn't understand Hebrew. You didn't get access to God's word. And so as the next generation is starting to lose the language, they're losing access to God's word. They're losing access to God's people, which means they're going to lose access to God himself. They're going to lose their faith. They're going to be drawn into other faiths instead. It's the spiritual corruption and corrosion of the next generation. That's what Nehemiah is getting at here. There was a, a, a saying that was told to us when we were first married, maybe when we first had kids, I can't remember which, but it's really stuck with me. As parents, what we allow in moderation, our kids will allow in excess. What we allow in moderation our kids will allow in excess. Things that are small little sins, or maybe they're not even sins, maybe they're just kind of on the verge of sin or or could lead to sin, but we we, we can handle it. But then the next generation, they grab a hold of that, well, mom and dad, I can do that. But then they don't have the same reserve or control or understanding that we have, and it just multiplies. And I think we've seen this over several decades now here in the United States, in several areas of life, with alcohol and drug use, or abuse even, with sexuality, with busyness and overwork and feeling the need that we have to work seven days a week to make it ends meet, the elevation of sports and entertainment way past a pastime to a way of life, a lack of financial discipline, and a growing amount of debt because we don't know how to be patient and wait on things. A lack of respect for authority in pretty much every area of life. These things don't happen overnight. These aren't things that just flip like a switch. This is one generation allowing something small to grow into something big and something bigger and the next and the next and the next. And that's what Nehemiah is talking about here. For them, for the Israelites at this point in time, it was interfaith marriage. And I can, I can hear the conversations. I can hear the arguments that they're, well, what's the big deal? They're just like us. They live right next door. We love each other. Isn't love enough? Like, we, we all, you know, go to the same stores and we do the same things. Like, what's the big deal? They believe in that God. We believe in this God. It's not that. We love each other. It's, it should be enough. And Nehemiah's like, no. And this is why. Little sins. I'm sure that's what they thought this was. That's just a little thing. It's just, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Little sins lead to big problems when they're allowed to grow and grow and grow. So this is the interfaith marriage issue. And look at Nehemiah's response now to the people on this. He says, I confronted them, I cursed them, I beat them, and I pulled out their hair. That sounds like a middle school girl fight to me right there. Like, I don't know about you, but that's kind of what I envision right now. Like, 
Nehemiah is serious after these guys. He's bringing them some serious discipline for their sin. Which leads us to step number six. Pull out hair. No, I'm just joking. Don't do that. (laughs) Discipline yourself. When it comes to temptation, when it comes to sin, we need to discipline ourselves. Because if we don't, God will. And trust me, his hurts a lot more. Now, I'm not saying to go beat yourself, okay? I'm not saying to go pull out your hair. We're not, we're not going down that road of Christianity, okay? That's not what we're doing. But there are some ways where we can put, we can make sin hurt. We can allow sin to hurt so that it dissuades us from doing it again. When I walk in sin, I shouldn't try to skirt the consequences. I shouldn't try to, to bow out and kind of to try to get out from it. I should accept that so that I know what my sin has done. Sometimes for us as Christians, as we mature, as we start to get further along with Christ, we don't sin less necessarily. We just sin better. You might know what I'm talking about. Like, we get really good at hiding the big blatant sins that everybody can see, and we get really good at hiding our sins in the little ways that nobody else sees so much anymore. And it's a lot easier to avoid the consequences and to avoid the pain of sin when I'm the only one who knows about it. But if I put some things in place, if I put some consequences, if I put some deterrence in my life, that when I step over that line, I'm going to feel that, I'm going to feel that discipline for my sin. That can help me grow past that and be a deterrent for me continuing to, to feed that idol in my life. So we need to discipline ourselves. But then notice this. He didn't stop there. Right? He, he does the, the confronting, the cursing, the beating, the pulling the hair. But then he says this. I made them take an oath in the name of God. This is so key. Guys, the other six steps I just talked about, they're all good, they're all important, they're all helpful, but they're all for not if you don't get step seven. Take an oath in the name of God because sin isn't just against you. Sin isn't just against others. Sin is always and ultimately against God himself. And so step number seven is deal with God, not just sin. It's not just enough for me to deal with the effects of my sin or the pain of my sin or the struggle of my sin. I have to deal with a holy God who is offended by my sin. If I'm ever going to truly smash idols in my life, I have to hate my sin enough to turn to God. The phrase that I oftentimes use when I'm discipling or counseling somebody in this area is that I have to love Jesus more than I love my sin. Love Jesus more than I love my sin. That's where the heart change happens. The first six steps Again, they're good, they're helpful, but they're just behavior modification. 
They're just helpful steps to get me going down the right path. But ultimately, if my heart's going to change, it's got to be this. It's got to be me and God doing business over my sin. You know, like many males my age, growing up as the kind of first Nintendo generation, um, I, I really like video games. I just have. I grew up in that. That's my thing. Um, and, and when we bust my wife's heart, when we first got married, there were times where I would spend hours playing video games, and she would have to just sit there and watch painfully. Um, and, and there finally came a point in our marriage, I think maybe when we had kids, actually, that it became very clear that my time doing that was taking away valuable time from her and from my family and from our girls. And I had to make a decision. Which was more important? Which was more valuable? Time playing that or time with them? Easy decision, right? Should be. But the reality is there was a piece of my heart that wanted to hold on to that selfish me, I like this, I want this, and my heart, for it to really work, had to change. I had to get to a place where I truly loved them and loved those relationships more than I loved myself and whatever it was that I wanted to be doing. And some of you are like, video games, seriously? Okay, whatever it is for you, all right? Basketball or running or shopping or knitting, I don't know, whatever else your thing is, right? Like reading books, there has to come a point where I have to put them before me. The same thing is true with our sin. There has to come a point in our hearts where we say, I love Jesus more than I love my sin. I'm giving myself to him rather than giving myself to this over here. That's where the heart changes. That's where it really finally clicks. So the last four steps, have truth tellers, build fences, discipline yourself, and deal with God, not just sin. But then look how Nehemiah ends chapter 13 and the whole book for that matter. This is so telling. Verse 30, he says, Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God. For good. The last point this morning is cleanse your heart. Nehemiah here, he says, I cleanse them from everything foreign, meaning everything not of God. Okay? I got rid of everything that wasn't of you, Lord. And that, that type of cleansing can only happen when you love Jesus more than you love your sin. All the other steps, again, they're good, they're helpful, even necessary at times. But the journey of sanctification, the process of sanctification can only be really fulfilled, it can only really find victory in that when my heart is cleansed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is why the gospel is central to everything and everything, everyone that we are as Christians. The gospel is not just about salvation. It starts there. It starts with me seeing I'm a sinner. I'm separated from God because of my sin, and I can't fix that. I can't bridge that gap anymore. 
I need help to deal with the sin and the idols of my heart. I need Jesus, God's only son who was sent to earth to die for my sin. He lived a perfect sinless life and went to the cross and died in our place for our sin to take the guilt, the penalty that we owed. And he put it on himself. And he died and he was buried and then three days later he rose back to life to show us that he was God and to offer us salvation, to offer us forgiveness of our sins, to be freed from that if we will come and put our faith in him and him alone. He promised that he would cleanse us He would cleanse our hearts, but it only comes when I love him more than I love my sin. When I repent and I turn away from sin and to the one who is the one and only Savior. That's the first step in victory over idols in your heart. I've shared this before. There's kind of three pieces of sin that we have to deal with. First, you have the penalty of sin, which is death. Jesus took that for us on the cross. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are free from the penalty of sin. But there's also the presence of sin. And the Bible tells us that even though we're free from the penalty of sin, as long as we're on this earth, as long as we're in these flesh bodies, the presence of sin will always be a reality for us. We don't get free from the presence of sin until we see our Savior face to face in glory. And then in between the penalty of sin and the presence of sin being gone, right now here in this life, we have to deal with the power of sin. Every day, pressing in on us, trying to overtake us, trying to make us step back into that old life, to that old person that we were before Jesus saved us. And that, that is the process of sanctification. Day in and day out, step by step, fighting against the power of sin in our lives with the help of Jesus Christ. I'm going to try to illustrate this, and I did not pick somebody ahead of time. So, Ben, I'm going to pick on you. Can I pick on you? Come on up, man. Come here. So, I want to do a little quick visual here for you. Let me just go right here, bud. So, I want you to imagine for a second that all this floor out here is sin. All right? This is the sin of the world, the sin of our lives before Jesus. And this little black stage up here is life in Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you go from sin to life in Christ, all right? So go ahead and turn around here for one, Ben. Step back for a second. So when, when he says yes to Jesus and puts his faith in Jesus, go ahead and step up. He comes out of sin and in to life in Christ, all right? That's free now from the penalty of sin. However, we still have to fight against this power of sin in our day-to-day lives. And in this fight, it matters how we go about it. So, Ben, I want you to try to get as close to sin as you can without falling off there. Just get as close as you can. So, if we're living life, well, we're, oh, see? See? So, don't fall. Don't just get, right. That's good. That's good. So, if we live our lives in Christ like this, where I'm in Christ, but I'm right up here next to the edge, it doesn't take much, right? Ben's a fairly big guy, but it didn't take much for me to push you off there, did it? No. 
because he's right here next to it. Now, sit back up here. You can go anywhere you want on this stage, anywhere you want in Christ to keep me from getting you into sin. Where do you want to go? That's where you want to go? Are you sure? Okay. Do you see the difference? Thanks, bud. You can give him a hand. That's good. This is what we're talking about. This is the fight of sanctification. It's not staying right here on the edge, dabbling in sin, wanting to be as close as I can. I'm not stepping in it. I'm not there yet, but I'm close enough where I get to still have some of the old life that I want to have, that I want to see, I want to be a part of. Because as long as I'm staying here, I'm not actively fighting against anything. And all it takes is one little bad day for Satan to push me off into sin again. One little temptation to draw me out. I should want to get as far away as possible from that and as close as I can get to in Jesus. And then Nehemiah ends with this. I want to show you one more statement and we're done today. He ends his whole book with remember me, oh my God, for good. Nehemiah actually prays this three times just in chapter 13. Did you catch that? He keeps repeating this phrase, remember me, remember me, O God, for good. And in fact, this prayer lines up with all the prayers he's been praying throughout the entire book. Like Nehemiah has been a man of prayer this whole time because he knows he needs Jesus. He needs God to help him to do what he's been called to do. And he has spent his life working and serving and glorifying God. And he's praying that God would take that offering of sacrifice that he has made and remember it for good and for his glory, that he would feel the blessings of God as a result. Friends, this is how we get to experience more and more grace of God. It's not by sinning more so grace can abound. Paul said, no, no, no. You want to experience more of God's grace? Walk more in the steps of Jesus Christ. Walk in obedience to who he is, and you will see the favor and the grace and the goodness of God flood your life. To grow for God's glory, I must guard against the idols of my heart. One of the best ways you can guard is be on the offensive. Be taking those seven active steps every moment, every day to fight against temptation, to fight against sin, and to keep yourself in obedience to God and to his word. Listen, the Christian life is not easy. It's not. It's not smooth sailing. It's not perfection. If anybody told you that when you signed up, they sold you a bill of goods. It's not this perfect upward incline that we just get a little bit more and more like Jesus every day just because we said yes. It's a fight. It's a day-by-day, step-by-step, lifelong journey of smashing idols and worshiping Jesus. It's about turning my heart in every area to love Jesus more than I love my sin. 
That is true spiritual growth. That's what glorifies the one who gave his life to buy your freedom. That's what we want. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We're going to recommit ourselves to the Lord, and we're going to ask him through the power of his Holy Spirit to help us walk in sanctification, to walk in obedience step by step, day by day. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you right now, God, and we thank you so much. Thank you, God, so much, Lord, that you gave your son so that we could be saved from sin. That we don't have to be ruled by it anymore. We don't have to walk in it anymore. We don't have, that does not have to be our life anymore. That we can grow in you and with you. We can smash these idols in our life, in our hearts. Lord, thank you for your grace that both saves us and drives us forward in sanctification. Help us continually grow in Christ. We want to love, we don't want to love anything more than we love you. Change our hearts. Jesus, you are enough. Pray this in your wonderful name.